Amen. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 4 tonight, the last chapter in this book. The series that we've been in is Ruth, A Case of Redemption. And tonight, the last message is God always has the last word. We arrive at this last chapter having gone a long way through the story that has unfolded before us that we've recapped as we've gone along just so we have our bearings and kind of know where we've come from and where we are currently. You remember that the story began with a famine in the land of Israel. A man by the name of Elimelech along with his wife Naomi and their sons Malan and Kilian left Bethlehem and went to Moab to find food. In Moab, the two sons married Moabite women, Ruth, who is front and center in this story, and Orpah. Suffering followed with the deaths of Elimelech and Malan and Kilian, and Naomi was left a widow along with her daughters-in-law. Naomi made the decision that she was going to go back to Israel along with Ruth, who made the determination to go with her, and Orpah decided that she was going to stay in Moab. The entire story builds up to the kinsman redeemer. That's the point of the entire story. And it's a physical example of a kinsman redeemer that points us to the physical and spiritual example, uh, the ultimate kinsman redeemer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that under the Old Testament law, a kinsman redeemer was a relative who had the privilege or the responsibility, depending on how you looked at it, to act on behalf of a family member, a relative, who was in trouble, who was in danger, or who was in need. The Redeemer could, in effect, rescue a family member in an act of grace to help them in their need, and we find Boaz as that kinsman redeemer. He's a man of great character. He was put in that position by virtue of his family relationship, and he made good on the opportunity that God placed in front of him. As the story unfolded, Ruth went into the fields of Boaz to glean provision for herself and for her mother-in-law. Naomi realized that Boaz was qualified to rescue Ruth and to provide a home and a future for her, and she had hope about what was going to come in the future. And I read this excerpt to you uh, on a message before from one of the commentators who said, hope based on a dependence on a sovereign God motivates us to pursue and to dream and to act. It will inspire us to action and to service, and it will help us grasp a vision. That kind of hope comes from realizing that God is sovereign. If he wasn't, there would be no hope. If we can only depend on ourselves, there would be little hope. But with God, this kind of hope never disappoints, although it does require action. So it was hope that filled the circumstances that they were in, but they also knew, Naomi in particular, that she had to act on that hope, to step out on faith, to take a risk, and to believe that God would come through for them. So Ruth went to the threshing floor 
after they had discussed the matter where Naomi knew that Boaz would be, Ruth makes a request of Boaz to take her under his wing because he was a family redeemer. It was the same language that was used of coming under the wing of God, coming under the protective care and under the provision of God. And her doing so was basically a marriage proposal. It was Ruth's way of saying, marry me and bring me under your protection. As she had come to God for her spiritual refuge, she was now finding her personal refuge in Boaz. So Boaz, being the man of character that he was, responds by praying that God would bless her, agreeing to do what she had asked him to do. Uh, He knew her to be a woman of noble character, but first he had to determine whether or not the other relative that existed wanted to step in to the role. And we left Naomi as one whose heart had been changed by the Lord. Remember, she returned to Bethlehem as a bitter woman, uh, but by the work of God in her life, she was able to see God's faithfulness. We've left Ruth recognizing that she had taken a step of faith in what we would call a risk in proposing marriage to Boaz. She had put herself in a potentially difficult situation. And then we left Boaz acting in character when he could have very well taken advantage of the situation, but he didn't do that because that's not who he was, and it's certainly not how he wanted to represent God. They knew he was a man of integrity. They knew that he was going to fulfill his promise with urgency, and all they needed to do was wait on the Lord to work and to see what would happen. Remember that God works through our decisions and our choices according to his providence and sovereignty to carry out his will in our lives. Our choices and our decisions are not uh, totally separate from that. They are a part of what God uses to bring about his ultimate will for us. And think about it, as a little girl in Moab, Ruth could hardly have imagined that she was one day even going to marry a Jewish man named Malan, or that he would die and leave her a widow among her own people. Uh, She could not have foreseen moving to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi, leaving behind her people and her homeland. She could never have known that she was going to be proposing marriage to a man named Boaz at the threshing floor. But yet, that's how everything unfolded. There's so many things in our lives like that that we could have never known were going to unfold in that way. We could have never anticipated the details. But that did not preclude God from knowing every one of those details and from carrying out his perfect will for us. And I've often thought about what would life be like if we knew the future, if we knew what was coming. Uh, And I mean in terms of the specifics of our lives. Obviously, we know what's coming spiritually in the plan of God. But what would life be like if we knew the days and the weeks and the months and the years to come? I think life is challenging enough not knowing, living it one day at a time. And I think it would probably put us in a position of great stress if we knew collectively everything that was coming. 
And instead, I think what God wants us to do, since that's not a possibility, is to believe that God is good and to believe that he is constantly at work in your life and to trust that God is writing your story. God is unfolding the details. God is working out the specifics. First point I want to make here as we read the first two verses in Ruth chapter 4 is that God was at work and it called for preparation. God was at work and it called for preparation. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 1 and 2, Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer, Boaz, had spoken about, came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. Now remember, there was anticipation that Boaz was going to follow through on this whole circumstance to determine whether or not he was going to take responsibility as the kinsman redeemer or the person who might have been closer in kin was going to do that. And being a man of action, he didn't waste any time. So what did he do? He went to the city gate and he sat down. Now remember, cities in those days uh, had walls to protect the inhabitants. The smaller villages that maybe didn't have as much population or didn't have as as many people might have just had a smaller gate where people would come and go. But the entrance, whether it was to a village or to a larger city, was significant because it amounted to what we might call Main Street. It was the place where the people, the farmers, the the business people, the visitors, the guests to the city, everybody would have to pass through there. Business would be done there. Disputes would be settled. The elders of the town would gather near the gate, and at times they would be called upon to be legal witnesses. So there was a lot that would happen there at the entrance of those villages and of those cities. Boaz needed 10 men to serve as witnesses in order to redeem Naomi's land and to take on Ruth as his wife. As we've noted, a man who was a closer relative had the right, first off, to redeem the land, and Boaz had to make sure that he had a legitimate offer to do this and that he turned it down somehow. For it to be legal, there had to be witnesses, and that's why they came to the gate. So when the other man arrives, Boaz calls to him and he asks him to sit down and to talk with him along with the other elders. Boaz was shrewd in his preparation. But that takes me to the second point. God was at work and it called for negotiation. We pick back up in verse 3 in our story. He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from Naomi, 
you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess. Now, what I presume here, before I read the rest of this, is that he wasn't anticipating that there was a package deal that was about to happen here, and that was going to influence his decision. He identifies her as the wife of the deceased man to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Verse 6, the Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the Redeemer removed his sandal, verse 8, and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilian, and Malan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malan's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. So what we find here is Boaz is about to close the deal. He starts with good news. Naomi has returned from Moab. She's going to sell the portion of the property that belonged to Elimelech. Uh, That indicates that she was doing it likely to provide for their needs out of their poverty. And as the nearest relative, the other man uh, who was related could redeem it. But Boaz was in a position that he had to either take it or leave it before he could make a decision about it. So it it may have seemed like a good deal for him to be able to pick up this land at a fair price and add it to his own holdings. And when he died, he could uh, pass it down to his descendants. So his quick response in verse 4 is, I want to redeem it. But as I noted, the problem was it was a package deal. You buy the land, Ruth comes along with it. Now, that's not a bad deal because she was a woman of high character, but this was a complicating factor, and the man changes his view. And he says, I can't redeem it myself, or I'm going to ruin my own inheritance. Now, I think he was likely married already. He had children who were his natural heirs. So he's saying, take my right of redemption, and you take care of it because I can't redeem it. The plan came together in the negotiation. And Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, would take care of Naomi and of Ruth. So when property was sold then, it was sealed by one man giving his sandal to another man, as is indicated in verses 7 and 8. And it amounts to the same thing as uh, buying a house and handing the owner your keys and saying, here it is, it's, it's done and over with. This is the this is the end of the deal, and we've now agreed to this, and you've got the keys uh, to the property. I'm giving up my right to walk on this property because it now belongs to you. Boaz twice says to the elders gathered, you are my witnesses. Now, that's important because everything was by the book. Why was everything by the book? Because Boaz was an honorable man. That, that's something that continually comes up. In this story, he even wanted to 
honor the name of Ruth's husband who had passed. He wanted to perpetuate the name of the family. And meanwhile, while all this is taking place, Naomi and Ruth are at home. What are they doing? I don't know. Maybe they're praying for their circumstances. But in the midst of that, them not knowing what's happening, Boaz is exercising wisdom, he's taking action, and he's demonstrating good character. And that leads me to the third point, that God was at work and it resulted in affirmation. We pick back up in verse 11. All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz takes Ruth as his wife, even though she's not present. The people present, the ten men and others who had gathered, pronounce blessings on Boaz and Ruth. And first, they ask God to make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. That was significant in the history because they gave birth to Jacob's sons who would become leaders of the 12 tribes. They're referred to as having built the house of Israel in verse 11 through the children they bore. So what was going to happen was the family was going to be perpetuated for generations. This had significance as well because it was pointing toward ultimately the the coming of Christ. Second, they pray that Boaz will prosper in Bethlehem. Verse 11, may you be powerful and your name well known. Now, Boaz was already well known, but they're asking that he would prosper all the more. And third, they pray for future generations to be blessed, like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah. Now, if you know your Old Testament history at all, uh, or maybe this is familiar to you, you'll know that this actually brings up a rather shameful event in Israel's history. I don't have time to go into it in depth tonight, but the story is found in Genesis 38. Uh, Judah, son of Jacob, slept with a woman he thought was a prostitute, but it was Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who married his son. She did it with the intention of preserving the family line, but pretty much everything about it is just an awful story. There's not a whole lot that we can say about it. That union produced Perez, and from him came descendants who built up his house in the tribe of Judah. But it's a reminder to us, again, remember I told you the difference between descriptive examples in Scripture and prescriptive examples in Scripture, that this is not telling us that this is a pattern that we're to follow, but it's simply giving us an example, a description of something that happened, and saying, look, God can work in all sorts of circumstances. And when God works in all sorts of circumstances, the good, the bad, and the ugly, he has one purpose. And that purpose is to carry out his will, and his will brings glory to his name. And that brings us to the end of the story. Pick back up reading in verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. 
He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then we come to the concluding verses in verse 18, the genealogy. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now in Ruth chapter 4, we find good fruit from bad seed. God has a way of redeeming bad stories. In this case, he used a Moabite widow who marries a Jewish man, and they would have a son who would be part of David's family tree. And it would be some 1,000 years later that Jesus was born. He would come from Abraham and David by way of Perez and Boaz and Ruth. It's phenomenal that God uses unlikely people in unlikely ways to bring about his purposes. Here was Ruth who had committed herself to Naomi's God. And she took the next step of faith. Her steps led to Bethlehem. Then her steps led to Boaz's field. Then her steps led to the threshing floor. And then to a marriage. And then to a child. And generations followed. And that road led to David. And then to Jesus. It says, I'm reminded of in Psalm 100 and verse 5. God's mercy endures to all generations. Let me state that another way. Generations come and go, but God remains forever the same. We are in the river of God's will. We don't know at what point in the river we are. We're just out there in the river. We're living on faith. That river's moving along. There are people stepping into that river generation after generation, and it's all progressing toward God's desired end. And we're privileged to be a part of what God is doing. And we can look to him and know that he can be trusted. In the remaining time that I have, I want to give to you very quickly 10 concluding lessons from the life of Ruth. I think these are both uh, a summation of the book and also are worth application in our lives because they are timeless principles reminding us of who God is and who we are and how we can follow him. The first point here in this, these 10 concluding lessons is that God's plan of redemption is for all peoples. God's plan of redemption is for all peoples. We're told again and again in this short book that Ruth was a Moabitess. That means that she was a Gentile. She was not of the chosen nation. She was not of the covenant people. But it was God's intention 
that she would be in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. And that it would be through the nation of Israel that the deliverer would be raised up. But you remember the original promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, reiterated again in Genesis 15 and reiterated again in Genesis 17, was that there would be a great nation that would be raised up. But through that nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was God's intention from the outset in his plan of Christ, that his plan of redemption would be for all peoples. Lesson number two. Faith is the root of faithfulness. Here's what I mean by that. If you believe, then you can follow. So you've got to have faith in who God is. And then that faith, if it is in fact genuine, is going to lead you to faithfulness. It's the whole concept of uh, our faith being evidenced by our works. We don't gain our salvation in any regard with works, but our works demonstrate our salvation. It's a complementary view of Paul in Romans and James in his writing to tell us that we are justified only through faith in Christ. We are declared righteous based on the finished work of Jesus, but then our lives demonstrate through faithfulness that our faith is genuine. And then lesson number three, faith requires taking the next step with God and leaving the results up to him. It requires taking the next step with God and leaving the results up to him. Now, I got a reality check for all of you. None of us are going to live long enough to see the full outcome of our faith. None of us will. But you know that if you're not faithful, you also won't live long enough to see the full outcome of the destruction that you left behind. So what do we do? We take the next step with God and we leave the results up to Him. But when we do it, We know that our faithfulness in the moment can have an impact down the line. And it also says to us that we don't have to be discouraged if we don't see immediate results or everything doesn't line up just beautifully with how we've lived our lives and in the way that the people who follow us live theirs. It's not going to be a perfect outcome. But God is faithful and we know that our faithfulness to Him, our faith, will bear fruit in the long run. And then I would say to you in lesson number four, God's faithfulness does not depend on us. Our faithfulness depends on God. God's faithfulness does not depend on us. Our faithfulness depends on God. Now we see this, and I won't go into all the examples we've had lately to evidence this, but anytime you see people who are publicly serving the Lord, at least by all appearances, you see them fall hard and you see them fall fast, then the questions are often, well, can God be trusted? 
Is faith real? Is Christianity really the way and the truth? And the answer is yes. Because God's faithfulness does not depend on us. His faithfulness does not change because his character is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging in all of his ways. But our faithfulness depends on who he is. And I would say in the next lesson here, God uses seemingly small events to bring about his providential plan. He uses seemingly small events to bring about his providential plan. It's one of the things we've seen in Ruth is that all these little details that in and of themselves, they, they're inconsequential. You read them, you think, well, why does that matter? Why is that repeated? Why does that come up again? Why is that example given? Because God's in the details. And God uses these seemingly small events in our lives that in and of themselves are inconsequential. They're, they're not all that major at the moment, but yet he's working them together to bring about his will in our lives. And then lesson number uh, six, I think, we can get through difficult situations. We all can. This too really shall pass. What do you think they felt like when they were over there in Moab? They'd gone there because it was so bad in Bethlehem to begin with. They get over there in Moab. The sons find wives. That must have been a happy occasion. Even though they weren't supposed to marry uh, among the Moabites, it, it was a happy thing probably for their family. And all of a sudden, things started to fall. Dad dies. Sons die. You're left with these widows who have nothing. What are they going to do? And they got to be thinking, are we ever going to get out of this? Well, there's good news because we can get through difficult situations. Whatever you're dealing with right now is but for a time. It really is. And God will see you through. And then character matters. Do the right thing when the options are before you. Do what you know is right. Not what is convenient or only what looks right to others. Character matters. When the options are presented in front of you, you better lock in and decide, I'm going to honor God. I'm not going to do anything that would dishonor him. I'm not going to do anything that would affect my testimony. I'm going to honor God because character matters. And then time spent waiting on God is never wasted time. Time spent waiting on God is never wasted time. Leave space for God to work. Don't try to run ahead of him. Don't lag behind him. Just wait and follow in faith. And then second to last, God's plan brings God's blessings. If you want to do what? brings blessings, follow God's word. He's spoken. He's revealed himself to us. His spirit is consistent with his word. 
and it all points back to his son. So his plan is going to bring blessings if you only trust him. And then finally, a new day is on the horizon. I don't know when it's coming. And it might not get a whole lot better in this life. I'm just going to be honest with you. In fact, your circumstance might get worse before it gets better. But I'm going to tell you, it's going to be eternally better when you're in the presence of the Lord. And everything that you've endured now in this life, it's going to seem like a blip on the radar screen of eternity. It's going to seem so insignificant, you're going to wonder, why did I let that consume me like I did? I love this quote, and I'm going to close with it. I love this quote by John Piper. He said, the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there. The life of the godly is not an interstate through Nebraska, but a state road through the mountains. There are rock slides and precipices and dark mists and bears and slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you go backwards in order to go forwards. But all along this hazardous, twisted road that doesn't let you see very far ahead, there are frequent signs that say the best is yet to come. And at the bottom right corner, written with an unmistakable hand, are the words, As I live, says the Lord. God is faithful. And may the testimony of our lives be that we've lived with character and with faithfulness keeping our eyes on Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, thank you for Ruth. Ruth.